Welcome listeners to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Brianne Fallon and he's Chris Carter and he's David McConaughey and Chris, welcome back. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I've been on sabbatical uh, for a few weeks and probably uh, will be for a few weeks more. It's been wonderful to, to see podcasts coming out and have nothing to do with them. Those are heavily in quotation marks, but you know what? What a relief, right? <laughs> what a relief, indeed. Uh, the the, the uh, sort of astute listener um, who like follows everything that we do will probably notice that this podcast is going out early. Um, it's going out um, on the thirty first of October because this is a a spooky time of year. Um, I've got an interview that Dave recorded um, with Professor Andrew Chesnut um, on Lady Death and the pluralization of Latin American religion. Um, Don't want to say too much about it now. We'll pass over to Dave, but uh, hopefully you appreciate us putting out this uh, early episode um, so that it ties in a bit more with with, uh, global calendars. But take it away, Dave and Andrew. Welcome. I am David McConaughey, and today I am joined by Dr. R. Andrew Chestnut, holder of the Bishop Walter F. Sullivan Chair and Professor of Religious Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. A Latin American specialist, Professor Chestnut is the author of numerous articles and five books, including his latest, Devoted to Death, Santa Morte, The Skeleton Saint, which is the first and only academic study in English of the folk saint of death. Dr. Chestnut is a regular commentator on news and religious affairs and writes a blog for Pathias called the Global Catholic Review. Dr. Chesnut, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation, Dr. McConaughey. One of the things that I'm really excited about your work is that you, for especially American audiences, really let us into an entire world that the Global South is participating in and that is thriving in Latin America. And I think up here in the U.S. and perhaps in the Europe, um, our two major audiences of folks that listen to us, we need some orientation, we need some help really understanding um, what's going on and the areas that you study. So can you say a little bit about um, your research and the kind of questions that really drive your focus in Latin America? Yeah, um, I, I really started as a specialist in Pentecostalism in, in Latin America, more specifically Brazil. Um, my book, Born Again in Brazil, which was published in 1997, was the first book in English on the Pentecostal boom in Brazil, which over two decades later is still very relevant as today Brazil has the largest, is home to the largest Pente- Pentecostal population on earth, larger here than even here in the United States, and who were integral in electing uh, Brazilian President Bolsonaro. Um, after that, I moved on. Uh, it, it was very uh, obvious to me as I was doing my field research in Brazil, in the Amazonian city of Belém, that, uh, that there was intense religious competition taking place among the three major religious groups of Brazil, Pentecostals, Catholics, and the um, Afro-Brazilian religious groups such as Umbanda and Candomblé, the two most important ones. So for, for my second book, Competitive Spirits, Latin America's New Religious Economy, um, I look at the religious competition 
taking place in Latin America through the theoretical paradigm of religious economy, in which you kind of look at faith institutions um, competing with each other much in the same way that commercial enterprises do in the commercial economy. And so I focused on those religious groups who in the past century have had, had the most success in terms of attracting membership. And, and that would be, again, the Pentecostals, um, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, which is the Catholic Church's own version of Pentecostalism, has been thriving in Latin America and the global South as its response to stiff Pentecostal competition. And again, looking at the religions of the African diaspora, uh, I also considered Haitian voodoo and Cuban Santeria. Um, and then I moved on, as you mentioned, my latest work is on what is now the fastest growing new religious movement in the entire West, um, Mexican folk saint Santa Muerte, which translates in English both as saint death and holy death. Um, unfortunately, Pew Research hasn't stepped in or Gallup polls, so we don't have any hard numbers. But after a decade of research, I estimate there's some 10 to 12 million Santa Muerte devotees, uh, mostly concentrated in Mexico, Central America, and here in the United States. So I don't know. I'd say if there's one major connect or two major connecting threads in my two decades of, of research, um, first would be the paramountcy of faith healing. Mm. Um, my, my, main argument that the motor driving the Pentecostal boom in, in Brazil and Latin America is its emphasis on, on faith healing. I found that so many nominal Catholics had converted at the time of an acute health crisis, which they weren't, weren't able to solve through the Catholic Church or through secular health care uh, either. And so the Pentecostal church has always kind of put faith healing, accept Jesus as, as your Lord and Savior, be baptized by the Holy Spirit, and this will kind of cure your, your afflictions of poverty. And so um, that, that I really find to be kind of the, again, the, the motor that's been pro propelling the Pentecostal boom in, in Latin America and the global South. And so I was so surprised when I started my research on Santa Muerte uh, in 2009, that also a key component of her appeal, um, both in Mexico and here in the United States, is is her role as a curandera or faith healer. So many people come to her major shrines in Mexico either giving thanks for a healing they believe that she performed for them or a family member or asking her for that. And so that was just one of the great surprises in my research. I mean, who, who's going to imagine that this fierce looking death saint is also a potent healer as well. And so, so this, this kind of thread of, of the great importance of faith healing has been common and a, a commonality in my two decades of research as is um, my primary focus really has been on lived religion, religion as it, as it's played out at the grassroots in terms of rites and ritual, rituals, I'm much more, uh, I'm much less interested in, in the written word and, in dogma and doctrine, uh, in my focus. This is a really interesting way to think about your work. One of the questions that I really had for you, and, and I've been engaging with your work, um, Born Again Brazil for some time, talking about the kind of charismatic exchanges between, 
um, groups like the New Apostolic Reformation and folks in Guatemala and Brazil, uh, on those kinds of things, you you really f- frame it as a solution to the health crisis of of poverty, and it sounds as if. 20 years later, and this is a, an amazing thing to say, right? 20 years later, you still think that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I would still make the same, same argument. And, and especially, I guess I'd throw in since um, prosperity theology mm. has, has essentially become a hegemonic theology among Pentecostals and, and many evangelicals across the Americas. As we see, it's kind of the unofficial theology right. of, of the tr- Trump administration. Absolutely. Here. Um, and so I, I, I'd throw in the element of prosperity, which wasn't as uh, prevalent when I initiated my research some, what, 25 years ago. Right. But yeah, the health, the health component is still kind of, I'd say, the sine qua non of, of Pentecostalism's appeal in Latin America and the global South in particular. And even, even here in the United States, I mean, um, you know, the great pioneering Pentecostal televangelist, Oral Roberts, mm-hmm. I mean, he, 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 you know, who, who brought the message on TV for the first time here in the United States really, I mean, you know, the crux of his message to, was faith healing as well. Uh, right. Benny Hinn as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, it, I mean, the whole prosperity element of it gets so much attention lately, but we can't, we can't, you know, forget the other part of the equation, the health emphasis. Do you think that part of the sales pitch for the shift maybe from stronger Catholicism that was not charismatic to the rising Pentecostals and then Catholic competition in charismatic spaces, that, that, that framework it is really only exposed through the kind of lived experience stuff that you work on. You, you suggested that perhaps the kind of like written stuff is less, um, is less crucial for the way that you think about things. But I think when I think of the Pentecostal orientation to what's important, show me the power, right? Show me a thing that will have results that will connect me to the power of the Holy Spirit, and we'll do that immediately. It will do it vibrantly. It'll do it within my community. It will do it, you know, day in, day out. Uh, is that is that is that part of the the mix there? That kind of um, we're making claims about really strong claims about what the religious adoption of this can do for you, and then collectively the power of that choice really brings the the, it, the the rising tide lifts all boats right on that yeah yeah no doubt at the macro level um particularly that emphasis on on access and demonstrating the power of the holy spirit needs to be physically manifest right and so thus the pentecostal emphasis uh, particularly in latin america of constructing monumental temples of, of being seen with, with presidents and, and governmental authorities, right. such as, such as I think poignantly the case with billionaire Pentecostal Bishop Edgia Macedo, who has become one of the most visible and prominent backers of, of Brazilian President Bolsonaro and, and who recently, um, had him attend one of his, um, Sunday worship services in Sao Paulo and, and gave him a five minute blessing. Um, which, which is on, um, 
on YouTube somewhere. It's pretty extraordinary. So yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at the macro level, there, there needs to be physical representations and manifestations of the power. And particularly if we're talking about the ascendant prosperity theology, you know, that Pentecostal uh, pastors themselves need to be paragons of, of prosperity. Right. And so kind of the, the ostentatious display of their prosperity in terms of, you know, in terms of their choice of vehicles and their houses and, and the temples themselves. So yeah, it's not only, it's not only at the grassroots, it's not only live religion, it's also institutionally. That just tends to be my focus less, but I'm not saying that it's, a oh, less, yeah. you know, interesting or valid focus. So in the last two decades, you kind of highlight that that prosperity has really taken root. Can, can you talk a little bit more um, for uh, any of the listeners that may not be familiar with kind of the background, uh, especially of Brazil? Um, I know that many <laughs> centuries of Catholic dominance there really started to shift uh, mid 20th century with the kind of growth of Pentecostalism there. But then there's always this kind of backdrop of West African and um, syncretic kind of openness. And, and, and that, that configuration is so unique, not only in Brazil, but in each country in Latin America and the way that they do it. Can you, can you talk just a little bit of, about that, that blending uh, that they do so well? Yeah, yeah, I think Brazil is is particularly fascinating, and it's it's you know as a country of over two hundred million people, uh, and and such diversity, it's kind of the country that most mirrors the United States and is most similar, really, the religious economy to the United States. Um, so yeah, historically, of course, like all of Latin American countries, it's a Catholic country, um, and then at the end of the nineteenth century, you have the disestablishment of the Catholic Church from the Brazilian state, which of course sets the legal foundation for, not for Afro-Brazilian religions at that time, but the legal foundation for Protestants to start setting up their temples. And indeed, um, at that time, at the end of the 19th century, you have some of the major um, U.S.-based mainline denominations going down to Brazil, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, etc. Uh, they have <laughs> they have very little success in converting Brazilian Catholics, but they do have success in setting up hospitals and first-rate um, prep schools and and universities and such. Um, and then you know, building on this new kind of legal foundation, at least for other Christian for Protestants to set up shop, Pentecostals arrive uh, 1910, 1911. And really find really quick su success in, in converting Brazilian Catholics, um, to the point that, that we already start to have a critical mass of converts by mid 20th century, by the 1950s. And Pentecostalism really starts to mushroom in the 1970s and, and really has been growing like wildfire for the past five decades or so. Um, talking about the Afro-Brazilian religions, and I should say, I, I need to make this, this so clear. So of the 12 million African slaves who are forcibly brought to our Americas, 43% go to Brazil. In, in comparison, only 3% come right. here to the United States. So anybody with any interest 
in matters of the African diaspora, be it religion or, or any other facet, by necessity has to take a look at Brazil, if not start with Brazil, because of the right. sheer numbers. And so it's no surprise that Brazil is the place, maybe uh, with the exception of Haiti, Brazil is the place where today we have the most vibrant religions of the African diaspora, which historically were repressed, suppressed by both Brazilian church and state and really only are legalized in the late 1960s. And um, today, uh, and again, the two main ones are Umbanda and, and Candomblé, and, and today they're thriving, however, um, are, are facing a new round of persecution by Pentecostals, particularly in, in, in the, slum, the favelas of Rio de Janeiro, where, where Pentecostal gangsters... Um, raid their houses of worship called te tejeros and, and try to drive them out of their zones of influence. And so this is another kind of just fascinating development. Never in my, never 25 years ago did I imagine that, that, you know, now I'd be actually writing articles about armed Pentecostal gangsters in Rio de Janeiro <laughs> right. who, who are the agents of, of persecution and harassment of practitioners of Candomblé and Umbanda. And so, when, when you when you tw when you tweeted out your your latest uh, uh, post on that uh, from uh, uh, Pathios, uh, it exploded on my timeline. It got retweeted so much. It's clearly, I think, the rest of us share that surprise that uh, this is one of the configurations that we're seeing right now. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 surreal, but but we're we're, we're living in surreal times across the board, though. So, so if we can, that kind of grassroots activism that's happening, one access point from your, your current research on that is really the broad appeal of Santa Muerte. Can, can you tell us a little bit about why it is that this really potent symbol is connected to health and love and money and drugs and crime and, and cartels. H how did we get from a folk saint to uh, narco cartels, Pentecostals attacking um, Afro-Brazilian religious groups? It's just such a stunning transformation to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a big question. I, I don't, I, let me think where I should start with that. Um <laughs> Yeah, so, so Santa Muerte, Santa Muerte goes back to, to Spanish colonial times in Mexico and, and really is the syncretism or fusion of the Spanish Grim Reapers. And I say Grim Reapers because in Mediterranean Europe, Spain, Portugal, Italy, more often than not, it was a female representation. The Spanish Catholic Church over the figure of the Grim Reapers as a tool of evangelization of the indigenous people here in the Americas because, of course, in the beginning, they have no idea who the indigenous people are. They're not in the Bible. Are they humans? Are they animals? Mm -hmm. uh, do, do they have their own religions? So the, the Spanish Catholic Church brings over the Grim Reapers at, to represent death. And of course, for the Europeans, it was the, the Grim Reaper was a mere artistic 
representation rendition of death that arises during the great death and dying of the black plague of the of the 14th century right. europeans did not venerate or worship the grim reaper reapers and, and imbue him or her with any supernatural powers and so it's the case that race comes over here for example as part of um holy week processions you know, representing the good death, the holy death of Christ. And again, one of the English translations of Santa Muerte's name is holy death, referring to the holy death of Christ. And so it's it's the case that um, some of the indigenous groups in Mexico, Guatemala, Argentina, Paraguay, because there's two other skeletal death saints, which I'll mention in a minute, um, interpret the Grim Reapers through their own pre-existing religious context in which the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Guarani down in South America had their own death deities, their own death gods and goddesses, such as the Aztec Mixtecasihuatl, who presided over what used to be the Aztec Month of the Dead, which, of course, the Spanish Catholic Church collapsed into the present two days of the dead. Um, so anyway, she's a syncretism of, of this belief, this indigenous belief in death deities in the Grim Reapers. She goes off the historical record in uh, 1797 and only resurfaces a century later, a century and a half later in the 1940s. When American anthropologists report her for the first time in in on the Pacific coast of Oaxaca, interestingly, among Afro-Mexicans, and from mm. the 1940s to the 1980s, we have both American and Mexican anthropologists starting to find um, mostly female Mexican females dressed in black, <laughs> venerating Santa Muerte. By the time we get to the 1980s, across the Rep Mexican Republic, but during this time, our anthropologist friends reporting her only working one type of magic. And that is love magic. And so at the mm. mid-century, the only type of miracle that she is reported um, performing is love sorcery, mostly for aggrieved Mexican women who believe their husbands or boyfriends are cheating on them. And so they petition Santa Muerte to take her oversized scythe and to cut out the other woman from their husband's path and to bring that husband, that badly behaving man, back home, humbled at her feet, um, under the threat of Santa Muerte's scythe to never be adulterous once again. <laughs> and so her that, that's a that's a terrifying image. <laughs> it is. And and so her origins, at least in the 20th century, and and you know, last time I checked, and when I did the research for my book Devoted to Death. Her number one selling colored votive candle was the red candle, not of not of mm. blood and death, but of 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 the heart of love and passion. Right. And indeed, still one of her premier roles is as love doctor or love sorceress. Um, mm. At some point in the late 80s, she starts to become associated with organized crime um, to the point that today um, you've probably seen. Um, some of my writing and along with um, my colleague and research partner, Dr. Kate Kingsbury uh, of, of, you know, she's been labeled a narco saint. In fact, that's really, that was the catalyst of my own interest is, is when the, um, the Felipe Calderon administration ordered the Mexican army in March, 2009 
to go onto the border with California and Texas and to demolish some 40, 40 Santa Muerte shrines. And so when I saw that news, I'm like, I knew about Santa Muerte because I've been going to Mexico since the early 1980s, but I had no idea that she had been uh, fingered as the religious enemy number one of the Mexican government at that point. And so right. if, if the, if the Mexican government is is issuing statements calling for the destruction of you know roadside roadside temples by bulldozer, you know you know you've really got something on your hands. Exactly, exactly. And so, um, so in, in fact, Dr. Kingsbury and I just just published a pathos yesterday about about these narco saints. And so, um, one of one of Santa Santa Muerte's roles is as protectress of of cartel members, uh, protecting them from harm from rival cartel members, law enforcement, but also obviously since she's a folk saint and she's amoral, she's not a Catholic saint. Uh, they also ask her to to eliminate, bring harm to their rivals as well, and so that's another important role that she plays. But but one of many, right? One of the things that that struck me about it, and and I work with far more American stuff, is uh, Bob Orsi's work on Saint Jude, for instance, where we really see the lived experience of the relationship of. Um, Catholics with their saint of choice as revealing all of the kind of issues that really matter to a person and really how it builds their whole world out from the saint organizing the perspectives about it. I think it's really interesting if you, if Santa Morte starts off love, right? The avenging angel for infidelity, we can't. We don't have to work too hard, right, to draw a line to the cartels mentally. If we think of the protection of uh, secrecy, right, the protection of um, the sphere where cartel members are not wanting to talk about their activities, and then avenging those that uh, break that silence or that are that are working against them. That it that it's not a hard road. That that passion that the that the size brings to the to the unfaithful husband is the same passion that cartel members hope that um, she'll bring to the enemies of the cartel. Is, is that the kind of way that we should think about it? Or, or is, is something else going on? Do you think? No, I think so. Particularly since, um, since most Catholic saints tend to specialize in one or two type of, of miracles, such as St. Anthony will help you find your lost keys or cell phone. And mm-hmm. so, so very quickly Santa Muerte morphs from this exclusive focus on love sorcery to today, you know, being a multitasking saint who does it all. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, she, she covers all bases and, and that's part of her appeal as well. Not, not only that she covers and, and, and going back to her um, colored votive candles, which was the schema for the way I organized my book. She has a, a seven power, rainbow colored candle for those folks who are looking for miracles on multiple fronts, which, <laughs> which, which are a lot of people, right? Yeah. And are we all? <laughs> and particularly I've, I've, I, we can't ignore the fact that 
devotion to Santa Muerte has mushroomed during a time of great death and dying, of bad death. Yes. Juxtaposed to her name again of holy death in Mexico. In the last decade, the only country that surpasses Mexico in violent death is another country where I have relatives, Syria. Mm. Uh, and so we're well over 200,000 violent deaths in Mexico uh, in the past 10 years. And so not, I'm not making that one-to-one correlation in right. the, in the mushrooming rise, but there's no doubt that, that this, uh, hyper violence of the interminable drug war, um, creates fertile soil because there's a lot of folks who ask her for more life, for more grains of, of life in that hour, her iconic hourglass that, that she, that she holds. Um, in addition, again, to narcos asking her to, to, you know, cut the life down from their rivals as well. And so that a saint of death should become so popular in a Mexico of such bad death in the past 10 to 15 years, uh, is of little surprise. You've written about a lot of other folk saints as well, like the, um, Our Lady of Oxum, the Black Madonna. Is should we be as religious studies observers of folk practice and lived experience? Sh- should we be paying far more attention to the kind of constellation of of major figures? I think you rightly point that you know Santa Morte's rise reveals how hard it is sometimes for religious studies scholars to address the rapid rise of a new religious movement, a new religious emphasis, a new religious symbol. It takes us a long time to catch on to what's on the ground, to do the research, to publish the research, to have the conversations that really kind of unpack everything. Um, and, and what I've been really pleased about is so every time I see something come across on, on Pathios is, is how vibrant it all seems. Everything is new to me about this being a non-specialist in the area. Do you feel like more of this is needed that we need to pay attention to more of uh, these things in, in all the places that we can find them? Yeah. I, I think, I think what you're, what you're pointing at is, and, and I'm also a big fan of paying attention to, to macro trends. In fact, I was a lead academic consultant on the landmark Pew survey mm-hmm. of the Latin American religious landscape that came out in 2014. So I pay attention to macro trends as well. And so one of the great, the, the greatest trend in Latin America on the religious landscape in the past four or five decades is it is pluralization. Mm. And whereas, whereas, you know, for four centuries, One's religious identity was, was inherited, was bequeathed, Catholicism. Now for many folks, as it is in the United States, it's elected, it's chosen. And so, so, you know, there's Mexicans who are finding Santa Muerte, uh, is far more appealing, far more, let's say, efficacious than certain Catholic saints. And so they go that route. Um, New Age beliefs are also very, um, prevalent in Latin America. And so, so it's a diversification. It's a pluralization. And indeed, just like in the United States, one of the fastest growing groups are the religious nuns, those who have no institutional religious affiliation. 
Um, the last Pew survey shows that here in the United States, religious nuns are up to 26%, yep. which means there are 6% more of them than their Catholics because Catholics are down to 20% in the United States. And uh, in, in Latin America, it's about 15% and exceedingly higher among Latin American millennials and Generation Z as right. well. So, so Santa Muerte and all of these other folk saints, I would, I would just put under this big tent of, of pluralization of the kind of, um, robust diversification and, and religious choices, um, that we've had for a long time in our own country. It's really interesting to think, to think about that as a, a kind of great awakening that's that's happening in Brazil, right? The the voluntarism of America that we tend to associate with uh, the kind of development of multiple Protestant denominations, really, in in my mind, is the kind of language that I'm that I'm hearing you you talk about with that. To hear that plural pluralization of uh, of of religious impulses there, but but also the the nuns really surprises me too. I heard a talk recently by one of um, Pew Forum's uh, uh, head researchers, and and like you, he highlighted that the nuns are growing basically in the U.S. at, at about 1% per year. Catholics are down to 20 21% now. Um, but he cited that globally when you talk about that, that's not what we're seeing. But, but I'm hearing a little pushback from you that, that maybe Brazil in its parallels with the U.S. is actually uh, – yeah, I, I I hate I hate to contradict one of my associates at Pew. Oh no, that's but I just saw the other. I, I just saw the other day um, I, I, on Twitter that in the Arab world we're seeing mm. significant rise over the last decade of religious nuns as well. So um, we know that it's a hemispheric wide trend uh. from Canada down to Argentina here in the United States. Mm. Western Europe, of course, Naturally. was the one who really po- pioneered in secularization, right? In fact, all the all the sociological models of secularization that that arose in the '70s and the '80s were mostly based on the Western European experience, such as Peter right. Berger and his associates. Um, so, so yeah, we have evidence that that in other parts of the world, uh, namely lately the Arab world, it's happening mm. as well. So, um, it, it's not only peculiar to our own. Um, I don't know here. that those are ne- are necessarily contradictory. I think w- w- what it what it tells us is that the situation is changing so rapidly right now that you know data that's even a few years old, right? If you're thinking of data from 2010, right, we're off by many percentage points now, right? In in that in that exactly. data, and and when you're talking on a global scale, you run into huge problems. I always tell my students when we're talking about China that. As far as I can tell, and based on the work of other experts, the, the survey data that we have about religion in China is basically useless. Like we have very little, you know, when we put out, when there's some global survey about what religion is like in China, that billion people in China is not being reflected by that data uh, mm-hmm. very well at all. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think we see that in sub-Saharan Africa, where we're talking about the rise of Islam alongside the rise of you know, Catholicism and Pentecostalism. And at the same time, if there's a secular movement, right, it's all happening all at once. And I don't know that the, that the broadness of the data is, is there yet. And it may take us decades, right. To, to sort, to sort this out, which I, I guess I'm thankful for because hopefully it will keep us all busy and in business. Right. <laughs> right, right. Right. Thanks to Pew in particular. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
so we've been talking a little bit in the last few minutes, uh, uh, kind of this meta approach. One of the things you said really uh, at the start of our conversation today was a comparison between um, President Bolsonaro and uh, maybe some of the current American politics that are going on. Uh, in a recent interview with uh, uh, Bradley Onishi that I did, um, he said uh, similar things to how um, a Pathios post that you posted by Dr. Anna Kayla Mosca Pineza uh, about how Brazilian Pentecostals are seeing President Bolsonaro as the Messiah or as a Messiah. C- can you talk a little bit more about the parallels between how Brazilian Pentecostals and Catholics are religiously relating to their leaders like Bolsonaro and how maybe for audiences in the U S how that might be resembling the evangelical American evangelical relationship to Trump. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a really amazing parallel there. Um, in which again, just as white evangelicals are the major religious or political constituency of, of president Trump, um, Pentecostals are that for Bolsonaro in Brazil. We know that overall seven, about 70% of Brazilian evangelicals voted for Bolsonaro. I don't think we have precise data specifically on Pentecostals, but one has to remember that about 75% of all Protestants in Brazil are specifically Pentecostals. So there's no, there's no doubt that Bolsonaro, you know, would have received over 80% of the Pentecostal vote. Um, And, as in the United States, actually 61% of white Catholics voted for Trump. Mm. Um, I still think he has majority support, although I, I have seen it declining, um, you know, maybe 51, 52%. And so we see, we see that same convergence of more conservative Catholics um, uh, allied with, with Pentecostals in Brazil and supporting Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro um, recently was baptized by an assembly of God pastor in the river Jordan um, and definitely hangs around and kind of identifies as evangelical, but historically he's been a conservative Catholic anyway. So he has, um, you know, he has the support of, of many Brazilian um, conservative Catholics who very much oppose what, you know, Pope Francis's agenda on the Amazon, the Amazon synod that's taking place right now. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, there's just this, the, uh, the, the Christian Zionism that I've, I've mm-hmm. written about too is just as important in Brazil for, uh, Pentecostals as it is for white evangelicals. Uh, and so I think Brazil under Bolsonaro is also in the process of probably moving their embassy in Israel from, uh, from Tel, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem as well. Um, some of the major Pentecostal pastors in Brazil, such again as billionaire Edir Macedo, actually sometimes um, dress up in in rabbinical vestments <laughs> and, oh. and, and, and you know cut cut rabbinical figures more right. than they do Protestant pastors. Yes. And so yeah, yeah, there's just a great kind of parallel taking place politically and religiously between the two giants of, of the hemisphere these days, Brazil and United States. Keeping, keeping on, on our kind of like current timeliness issue. You said to me before we began recording today that, uh, with Halloween coming up, we're recording, uh, in mid October here. 
uh, All Saints Day, and especially Day of the Dead, that there are actually a lot of really interesting things going on right now. Um, connecting a lot of these threads, um, the next few weeks are going to be pretty interesting. I heard you say that you were headed down to Mexico uh, for the Day of the Dead. Can you tell us uh, about that and, and maybe what you're hoping to, to do? Yeah, my uh, current research project focuses on um, Catholic death culture. And so um, I'm looking at things such as Day of the Dead, um, relics, um, some of the ossuaries and memento mori that you see in Europe. Um, but specifically, since we're on the eve of Day, Day of the Dead, this is kind of what I'm most um, immediately working on. And it's also related to my to my previous work on Santa Muerte in that one of the major trends in Santa Muerte devotion over the past five years is for devotees to integrate the Mexican death saint into their commemorations of Day of the Dead. In fact, it's become so popular and so controversial that um, annually the Catholic Church in Mexico issues um, admonitions for parishioners not to do that because Santa Muerte is satanic. Um, honoring your departed loved ones is one thing, but bringing in this heretical death saint is quite another. So please keep her out of your commemorations. But I should say, you know, at this point, um, you know, Santa Muerte has no official annual feast right. day. But if she ever does in the fe- in the future, it probably will be November second, mm-hmm. um, Day of the Dead. Because um, again, be- before before the Spanish conquest and colonization, it was the Aztecs had this roughly month of the dead, roughly corresponding to our August, presided over by Aztec death goddess Mixtecasiwato, who many Mexican Santa Muerte devotees see Santa Muerte really as the latest kind of incarnation or reincarnation of. That's so, that's so interesting. So there's, so there's, so it's like, I, I knew that, you know, since I, I wrote the first academic book in English on Santa Muerte, that it would probably be hard to, to move on to a new topic. And, and so here again in, in Day of the Dead, we see that nexus with Santa Muerte as well. So again, me having, trouble moving beyond <laughs> beyond uh, the death scene. I, I don't I don't know that we we should ever apologize when we find something such uh such a rich topic, right, that connects to so many issues in so many different ways from immigration to uh cartels to love to the kind of syncretism that we're seeing to politics like it's such a uh multifaceted uh area. I wanted it's, to, for, for example, oh, go ahead. for example, my research partner, um, Dr. Kingsbury is, is now focusing on, on her, um, appeal to women and how she's kind of a defender and protectress mm. of, of vulnerable women because, you know, I didn't mention it, but in addition to the narco violence besetting Mexico, there's also an epidemic of femicide as well. And, and so some of these uh. women who are at risk, look to Santa Muerte as a fierce uh, protectress uh, to protect them from predatory men. And so, I mean, that's a whole nother angle that I didn't really look into and devoted to death that uh, Dr. Kingsbury is is moving forward with. 
I can't, I can't wait. I, I will, I will reach out immediately so that we can hear, we can hear the, the second half of the new story here. Uh, that one of the things that I've really been impressed by is how collaborative your, your work is. And as we wrap up here, uh, I'd love to hear about your thoughts about collaboration as a scholar and, um, uh, what you see as the kind of challenges, challenges and benefits of doing of doing that scholarship in a collaborative way, because I really do think that the you and Dr. Kinsbury together are, are really have kind of a special public relationship that feeds off one another and produces really interesting work. C- can you can you share with us what that's like? Yeah, yeah. For me, it's been very strange because um, up until I recently started collaborating with her. Um, I had mostly just flown solo. Um, I, I can't even think of any, any co-authored, at least academic journal articles that I have. All of my books were my own single author books. So yeah, this has been new to me. Um, and, and has taken me by surprise because, um, uh, our particular collaboration is kind of so easy and seamless. And that, that ironically had been kind of one of the reasons why I maybe had shied away from collaboration, just imagining it being difficult and, and time consuming and everything. But, uh, but yeah, we have great intellectual academic chemistry. And so everything we do together is, is as easy as me writing on my own. Um, and so I, I think. I think both of us have just been fortunate with that um, because one could imagine that, you know, uh, you're not going to have that, uh, that uh, rapport with, with everybody to facilitate that. But yeah, it's, it's been wonderful because, you know, with Apathios, I'll just say, or she'll say, I'll take this and you take that and it all comes together and we don't need, you know, she's British. So um, at first I was like, okay, so what do we do about our, British versus an American English, but we, we just leave, we leave our respective, um, versions of the English language alone and nobody seems to be bothered by that. So uh, we run into that frequently here at the religious studies project too, where when, uh, the emails come from our, uh, uh, British <laughs> founders, Chris and, uh, and David that, that, uh, you know, um, at, at the, all the S's and when we're replying back, it's all, all the Z's and Z's, you, know, right, you, just exactly. have to, you just have to roll with it. Right. Exactly. Well, but the good thing for me, is she, she's in Canada. And so it's kind of up to her to, <laughs> to <laughs> assimilate to, to our, uh, new world English. Right. Right. You, you, you're pulling the, the rug right out from, from under the English language there. <laughs> yeah. It, it's been uh, uh, so wonderful to talk to you today. I really uh, do appreciate your time, and I hope that all of our listeners have enjoyed hearing about this really thriving area of research. And uh, if they wanted to uh, to find uh, you on uh, Pathios, what's the name of the, the blog that they should head to? Yeah, it's uh, the Global Catholic Review. Perfect. And uh, in addition, I also run a Santa Muerte blog with my research partner, David Metcalf. Mm. Metcalf. And it's called the Skeleton Saint, and it's like in its seventh year, and it's the only impartial blog out there that covers Santa Muerte news. And if uh, um, if folks wanted to find you on Twitter, where you are extremely active and always posting interesting things, what uh, what should they look for? 
I'm at Andrew Chestnut one, the number one. Perfect. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and have a great day. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, Dr. McConaughey. Well, I hope you enjoyed that excellent conversation with Andrew. We, we could have, we could have talked for a long time. He and I have so many research interests in common, but it's really fun uh, to really think about um, the way in which folk saints in Mexico and in Brazil play such an important role in people's lives. And we were really pleased to be able to offer to our listeners a kind of um, uh, a special seasonal opportunity to think about religion. And we were wondering, listeners, whether this is the kind of thing that you would like more content about. Um, if you do, uh, join us on Facebook for your suggestions. Um, what kinds of other things do you think would be fun to talk about, Chris or, or Bree, um, for seasonal seasonal stuff? What would be, um, Brianne, your, your number one um, uh, holiday for you that would be really interesting to hear about? Oh, that's a good question. Number one to hear about. Well, the one that sort of jumps right into my head because – of where I work at the Sydney Jewish mm. Museum is Hanukkah. And mm. particularly because in Australia we don't have a large Jewish population, it's not necessarily something that you hear a lot about or see a lot about. You know, you don't sort of see Hanukkah candles in, in grocery stores or anything. So that would be a holiday I would really like to hear about. But I was thinking that on Monday when we would normally put post a podcast that we might put a poll up on Facebook and have all of you vote to uh, as to the holidays you'd like to hear more about. But Chris, what about you? What would be your number yeah, one? Um, well, um, obviously we, we, we've been following the, the secular stroke Christian calendar uh, for quite some time with our festive midwinter specials. But uh, actually um, just uh, in Edinburgh, I'm right beside uh, my flat is right beside the Edinburgh Central Mosque and um, in fact we were trying to organize a thing in the uh, uh, religious studies seminar a sort of guest speaker coming later in the year and, and one of my colleagues threw, threw into the conversation that oh that's during Ramadan actually so it probably um, mm. and you know Ramadan naturally comes around every year um, and quite a few colleagues and friends are involved in the fast in some way um so it might be nice to to mark that but also we've had a few podcasts about religion and food but we've never really had anything about fasting um so it could be it could be nice to to tie in with Mm. ramadan perhaps yeah great well uh i hope that that listeners will will uh want to weigh in and have some interesting ideas for us i think we're really open to exploring content that um is uh listener yeah. listen listener demanded or high high demand from listeners cuz we really would like everyone to be able to to use these podcasts in their classrooms and to share them with their colleagues and and everything we can do to uh to make them um appropriate and timely and and really connect with with everyone is uh uh is is our goal so until oh, well, we until next time all, hey, all of us say we haven't teed up what thanks for listening oh we haven't <laughs> oh well that's true the <laughs> and it's a great one next week too you cannot leave that one out
Oh, it's true. You, you know, that's <laughs> that's the, the voice indeed. of experience um, chiming you know, in right there. <laughs> so, so what do we have uh, well, we've got, uh, coming um, up uh, next well, time? We've got a lot of important people. So we have a new interviewer, um, Andy Alexander, who's been speaking with um, Aaron Hughes, um, who I'm sure will be familiar to many listeners, and he's been on the RSP before, actually. And he was speaking to Andy about um, the great Jonathan Z. Smith. So there was a conference that happened in Norway over the summer on the, the legacy of, of J.Z. Smith. Um, so it's great to have a sort of eminent theorist speaking about an eminent theorist. Um, and, and we're quite surprised that we've never really featured anything about J.Z.S. before. In fact, we had hoped in the beginning, I, I remember someone suggesting, oh, it'd be great to get Jonathan Z. Smith on the podcast, but he doesn't do email. You'd have to send him a letter. Uh, <laughs> so um, unfortunately that, that we didn't get there in time. But, um, <laughs> hopefully this will be a nice sort of uh, legacy. And I know that lots of our listeners um, are quite engaged with his work. So I'm, I'm hoping it will be quite a important podcast with lots of discussion. That sounds great. Yeah. So, so it's time, it's time now. <laughs> thanks so we say again until next week on jay-z smith thanks for listening thanks for listening the religious studies project is sponsored by the british association for the study of religions the north american association for the study of religion and the international association for the history of religions the religious studies project is produced by the religious studies project association scio a scottish charitable incorporated organization charity number sc047750 brought to you by editors brianne fallon and david mcconaughey and founding editors chris cotter that's me and david robertson that's him our features are edited by rebecca barrett fox with marketing managed by benjamin marcus our opportunities digest managed by ella buck podcast transcription by helen bradstock and social media managed by ray radford don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter youtube itunes and other portals thanks for listening